Amen. Good morning, East family. Uh, man, it's so good to see you this morning. Um, if you're new here, man, we're so excited that you're here. If it's your first time worshiping with us, we actually bought you something. There's no other church that can say that. Um, but we actually bought you something if it's your first time worshiping with us. And if you'll fill out the card from the back of the seat in front of you, stop it by Next Steps on your way out. Simple process. They're not going to you know, sign you up for magazines or anything like that. Take that card there, and uh, they'll give you a free T-shirt and some information about our church. And so there's no restaurant you can go to this afternoon that's going to give you a free shirt. But we do here at Lindsay Lynn East, okay? That's how much we love you. We're glad you're here. Uh, today we're wrapping up this series uh, that we've been called, we've been calling Return. And uh, we've been looking at the first four books of the last section of the Old Testament. Um, and so th- those are called the Minor Prophets. And so we talked about last week really uh, what it meant, what the Minor Prophets were and what they weren't. And so um, I don't do this often, but we're going to have a quiz so here's the deal. If it's your first time worshiping with us, just smile and laugh because you don't have to take the quiz. If this is not your first Sunday, even if you missed last Sunday, you've had a whole week to check out the sermon online. So you're on the hook for the quiz. All right, so here we go. Question number one, answer out loud. Are the minor prophets called minor because they're less popular than the other prophetic books? No. Why are they called minor prophets? Because they're short books. All right, good, good, good. How many minor prophets are there? See, there's getting less and less answers as we go through. All right, 12 is the answer, correct answer. All right, last question. In Jesus' day, how many scrolls were used to contain the 12 prophets' sermons? One scroll. There we go. Awesome. Uh, Very cool. All right. Um, Those are the, uh, that's just to make sure y'all paying attention. So every week we've looked at we've looked at three minor prophets so far, and what we've seen is that the, each one of them, though the context is different, the people they're speaking to, the the time period in which they're speaking, everything's so different. Except the message is the same: return to the Lord. That's what we see over and over again throughout the minor prophets: return to God. However, the minor prophets don't just say return to God; they say return to God because, and then they all fill in the blank. And every one of them is describing God and his characteristic. They're, they're describing a characteristic of God. And so week one, we looked at the book of Hosea. And what we saw Hosea say is that God pursues us even in our most unlovely state. He says, return to the Lord because God pursues us. Week two, we looked at the book of Joel. And we saw that God restores those who truly repent of sin. So return to the Lord because he restores those who repent and return. And then last week, week three, we looked at the book of Amos and we saw that God sees all of our sin and loves us anyway. Even those that we think are hidden really, really well. So return to the Lord because God sees. And I'll tell you, if there, one of the most humbling sermons I've had to preach in quite a while was last Sunday, just knowing the, the sins that I don't think, that I think I've got hidden well. <laughs> that y'all may not know about sins that are in my heart, sins that I have in my mind, and don't look at me weird. You got them too. Looking at me with that righteous look. We all got sins, right? And so even as a pastor, I have those. And so last Sunday was just a reminder that God sees them, even if your church family doesn't. And so today we're looking at the book of Obadiah, and you need to go and start looking for it because it may take you a bit. Um, Got it. Um. And what we're going to, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see today through the book of Obadiah 
that God is a God worth returning to because he finish, finishes what he starts. He finishes what he starts. And so I want to do something this morning that uh, I've been in ministry now for uh, this, this year will be 14 years in ministry. I uh, preached a lot of sermons, but I have never read an entire book to start off the sermon. And we're going to do that today. And before you panic, it's only 21 verses. So don't freak out. Don't get up and walk out, Jared. Hang out for a minute. We haven't even got there yet, okay? So here we go. Just 21 verses. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray. And then we'll come back and look a little bit more in depth. Obadiah 1, one, or Obadiah 1 through 21. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let's go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in clefts of the rock in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be, wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Teman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. You'll be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not most boastfully mock in the day of their distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster. Do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all my nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame, and the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survival will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah and uh, who are among the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, 
will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now we can pray. Father, we thank you, God, uh, for weird books in the Bible, God, that at first glance maybe don't have a lot to do with us. Um, But God, I pray that today, God, just as you've done in my heart over the last few weeks, especially this week, God, you've helped me see that Obadiah, um, there's a message for my wicked heart too. And God, I pray that today, uh, God, you would would humble your servants uh, today. God, you'd humble those, God, who have been Christians for for one year or, God, 50 years. Um, God, that you would remind us of the wickedness of our hearts. And God, we would turn to you and repent today. Uh, God, we pray as always that you would teach us to know you today and that you would be with us as we move through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this book is a little different from the ones we've studied the last uh, few weeks because there isn't necessarily a direct message to God's people. Right? So when we talk about this period of history, uh, the term God's people is, is typically set aside for the nation of Israel. Uh, by this point, they've split into two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, but there, there's a, there is a message in the text for a nation called Edom, which was kind of southeast of Judah. But what I, as I've already said in the prayer, but I believe there's a great application for us as God's people today through this text. And so if you'll bear with me, I think it'll be good if you'll hang on to the end, okay? The first thing for note-takers is this. Uh, Obadiah makes this clear. The first thing we see is Edom's sentence. Edom's sentence. Obadiah begins by showing the reader that God is ticked at Edom. He's frustrated. He's mad. And then he kind of begins to tip his his hat at why he is so upset. Uh, Look with me. Again, I know I just read the whole thing, but I'm going to kind of just talk through about the first five or six verses um, just briefly. Verses 1 and 2, what, does he do? what do we see? God's calling all nations to make war against Edom. And God says something very particular is going to happen when that happens. He says, they will make you insignificant. Insignificant. We find out that that word would have crawled all over the people of Edom. Because what happens in verses 3 and 4 is Obadiah begins to say, he begins to talk about Edom uh, as these that live up on the high places. Edom thought very highly of themselves. He talks about the rock homes that they had up on high that they lived in. If you've seen uh, pictures of the city, ancient city of Petra, Google that later. Some of the coolest pictures I've ever seen of some ancient places. Um, and it's literally a city that's carved into the face of a rock. It's unbelievable. It's so cool. And I know you're wanting to Google it now, but fight the temptation. Okay. But Petra, um, you can find there's tons of documentaries and stuff too on the History Channel and all that. But Petra is believed to be the ancient capital city of Edom. And in these documentaries, you'll find that Petra was nearly impenetrable. Attacking armies would have to climb intense mountain terrain just to get to the city. And then to get directly in front of the city, they had to go through an almost cave-like path that was wide enough for one horse and a rider to get through. And you see that in the text. What does Obadiah say that Edom says? Who can bring us down? Who can bring us down? And I just picture, I don't know, I'm a visual guy. So I picture God off to the side going, 
I can. Right? Like, you talk, is it a question? Like, because I can. I can. God says, I, and he says, you think you're soaring like an eagle. You think you're above everyone else. He says, I'm going to bring you down to the ground. These are terrifying words. Again, we're not Edom, so we can, we can kind of, that's tough to be all. Verse 5 is scary too. God says, you know, when someone breaks into your house, what do they go after? When somebody breaks in your house, what are they going to steal? Something. Say something. Anything. Jewelry. Diamonds. That's it. Just jewelry. A couch. A hat. A cat. Oh, okay. It's like a couch. That's going to be a tough steal. Hope they brought a friend. But yeah, they're going to steal something. They're going to steal something of value, right? We had uh, we had a guy in our who comes to our first service typically, Terry Terry Nichols, and uh, uh, Terry had somebody break into his house not long ago while he was sleeping. Like he's in the house, and they broke in. They took his wallet. They took his laptop. And there's a list of about ten things maybe that they took. You know what they didn't take? Like the pictures hanging on the wall of his family, right? Because if somebody breaks into your house, they don't take everything. Because they don't—they're not, they're not worried about everything. Just, they didn't take the the box of uh, uh, garbage bags, glad garbage bags he had just bought and put underneath the sink, right? They didn't take that. They didn't take the Dawn dish detergent. They didn't take those things. They took the things that were of value. But what does Obadiah say? Obadiah says, "Hey, Edom, there's a day coming when the marauders, the the thieves, they're going to come in and they're going to level it. They're not just going to take the important things. There will be nothing left." of your city. Like that's intense. This is intense. And then in verse six and seven, God says, all of this is going to take place on a particular day. And what is the term he uses? The day of the Lord. Now for three weeks, we've talked to you about the day of the Lord church. And if you're, if this is your first time here, if you want to go back and listen to those, uh, take a day off of work or something, cause it's a lot. But um, but we're, we talked about the day of the Lord the last few weeks, and, and what we know is that oftentimes when we think about the day of the Lord, we all think about someday in the future or tomorrow, <laughs> whatever you think, but like the end of the world, like that's what we think about, right? And our senses get a little heightened as stuff's going on, battles, I don't know if Patrick may have mentioned that, like there's some war, there's some stuff going on, right? So where our attention automatically begins to think, ah, it's almost the end. Listen, but what we've been saying the last three weeks is when you come across the day of the Lord in the Bible, it's almost, it's actually not very often referring to that day. It's most often referring to a day that's actually days that have already happened by now. The day of the Lord in the Bible is not just a reference for a future day. It's a reference to a day, it's it's a reference simply to God's judgment. A day in which God deals out punishments for sin. God is saying here, Edom, you've chalked up a big list of terrible sins. The jig will soon be up. Your day of reckoning is coming. And somebody asks you, has it already come? <laughs> Before you answer, I wish we had time to do this. I would love for you to get your cell phone out and try to buy tickets to fly to Edom today. Flying to Edom Airport. You're not going to be able to. Right? <laughs> Any of you guys that work with people from other countries all the time on projects, you ever worked with an Edomite? Not unless you're really old. Y'all, God's already doled out in a lot of ways the punishment on Edom. They're gone. When you research Petra, it's empty. (laughs) There's nobody living there anymore. 
The day of the Lord has come in one sense, at least, for Edom. Edom has been destroyed. God has already handed down his judgment on them. And so because of that, we've got to ask the question, why, what was their crime? Why was God so angry with them? That's where Obadiah goes next. We won't spend any more time on their sentence because I believe it, it's in a lot of ways already been carried out. So point number two is this, Edom's sin. Let's look at that. Verse 10, God begins to describe their sins. He says, you'll be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. So that they're being violent towards someone, okay? But what is this brother Jacob thing? This is where Obadiah assumes that you're a good reader of God's word. And if I say brother Jacob and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, it's okay. That's what we're about here at Lindsay Lane East is becoming good students of God's word. And so I actually want to help you today. And it's going to get a little historical, okay? But you don't understand Obadiah if you don't know who brother Jacob is. You don't, you don't understand this, okay? And so we're going to take our time and go through this. The people of Edom that God that God is using Obadiah to speak to, they trace their lineage all the way back to a man named Esau. Okay, which probably doesn't maybe not sound familiar either. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bible, which Genesis is the very first book, chapter 12, what happens is that by this point God has already created Adam and Eve and they blew it. And then sin got out of control and God called up Noah and God put Noah in an ark. And he said, you and your family are going to restart creation. You are going to follow me. And guess what happens? Blow it. And the world continues to spiral again out of control. And from the end of Noah's story, like in chapter, end of chapter 9 up to chapter 12, we find that sin is becoming just a greater problem in the world. And God calls a man named Abram. He renames him Abraham. That may sound a little bit more familiar. God calls a man named Abraham to, a, to, to, to be the father of a new type of people. These people would call, they would be called by God, my own people. And what they would do is they would exemplify the characteristics of God to the world that was watching. As part of being God's people, God promised Abram or Abraham a big family, a big piece of dirt, and that their family would be a blessing to all the nations. That big piece of dirt is what becomes the nation of Israel, the, the, the actual property. And the promise, so Abraham has a son named Ishmael, kind of in a sketchy, weird way, because he didn't have a kid yet. And he's like, okay, God wants me to have a big family. i got to have a baby. So he d does so with a woman that's not his wife, which was not a good idea. And God tells him, that ain't what I meant. You ever had to tell somebody that in your life? I have to tell my kids that all the time. That ain't what I'm, that's not what I meant. Don't take me so literally. So God comes back and says, no, 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 you're going to have a baby with your wife. I assumed you understood what I meant. And he has a baby named Isaac. And then God goes to Isaac, this, this new baby, as he gets older, and God renews the promise through Isaac, he says, I'm going to make you a big family. I'm going to give you a piece of dirt, and I'm going to make your family a blessing to all the nations. Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. And Rebecca, she's mentioned like in this portion of the Bible and never again. Like what a cool legacy, right? To like play an important role and then like people not be talking about you. Because oftentimes what do people talk about? 
Like most of the people in the Bible, we remember the ones that blew it. <laughs> the reason you don't hear a lot about Rebecca is because she was pretty awesome. That's really cool. Anyway, so Isaac marries this woman named Rebecca, and she's having trouble conceiving. And we see in Genesis chapter 25, I don't think I'm going to read all those, Gage. Um, but what we see is that um, when, when Isaac's 40 years old, he takes Rebecca as his wife, and he prays. He says, God, she's childless, and, and I know that you've given me this promise. Again, just like you gave to my dad, Abraham, you gave us this promise, and we don't have any kids. And God answers the promise, and Rebecca gets pregnant. And what happens is, and, and, and my wife's in the room, this service now, which is helpful, um, like th- the first time I felt like a baby inside of her stomach, Yo, that's creepy. It's like a little alien in there, right? Like just you see things moving. And anybody have twins? Anybody ever give a bunch of twins? <sighs> Got to get some twins in this church. All right. <laughs> we didn't have any in the first service either. All right, but um, but 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 she had twins in there, right? I don't know that. All she felt is four legs and forearms kicking around. It felt like there was a fight going on inside of her. And it says that she seeks the Lord. She goes and inquires of the Lord. And the Lord says to her, this is verse 21, 20, 21, 22. This is verse 23. This is what God said to her. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and they will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the other, uh, the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, they were indeed twins. One comes out red looking and really hairy what the Bible says. And the second one comes out holding on to him, <laughs> grabbing his heel. Now they named the first one Esau, which it, in Hebrew it, it carries the idea of red and hairy. And then they named the second one Jacob. Um, and Jacob literally means heel grabber. He's a leg puller. He's a trickster. He's, he's somebody who's always annoying everyone else. <laughs> And so the the big question, now we got two kids. Okay, who will God continue the blessing through? Well, you got this rugged, tough character who grows up to be a, just a man's man, the firstborn named Esau, or a slimy, skeevy trickster named Jacob. Who would you pick? Well, don't answer because you God picks Jacob. And God goes to Jacob and says, you or the guy, I'm going to give you a big family, a big piece of dirt, and you'll be a blessing to all the nations. God chooses the slimy, skeevy guy. And God blesses Jacob with a lot of boys, and God renames Jacob Israel. Church, you see in this picture, if you've never seen the picture of the whole Bible, I just did it for you. This is where we're going, right? Jacob has a bunch of kids, a bunch of sons, and they become the tribes of Israel. Esau, though, God actually blesses Esau because he's Abraham's grandson, right? He, he got, but God blesses Esau and he names him Edom, Edom. So guess what the nation of Edom came from? Esau, right? And so what happens is throughout the biblical story, again, there's some really cool stories that I actually had in my notes and I realized we ain't gonna have time to do all that. But they actually begin partners. They begin as family members. You have the people of Israel and the people of Edom, and and God calls them to to work together and to help one another. But quickly, the story begins to shift when God's people come out of exile in Egypt. Edom doesn't help. 
And God begins to refer to Edom as an enemy of Israel, an enemy of his people. And throughout the years, as you read in the Bible, just as the two brothers fought inside their mother's womb, that's the history of their ancestry, fighting, fighting, fighting. Edom's, as I said, on the, well, I'm backwards here, so on the southeastern portion underneath um, Israel. So you've got the older brother and his family who were jealous because the younger seems to receive all the blessings. Any older siblings in the house? Don't us younger kids just get everything? Like you didn't grow up with anything, and they get it all. And if you have three, the baby definitely gets it all. That's what's going on. Uh, I, uh, Esau, Esau's like, man, God, you blessed Jacob. And then as their descendants come, guess whose land size was bigger? Israel over uh, over Edom. Guess uh, who was multiplying more quickly? Guess who, who whose family grew quicker, bigger, bigger, quicker? I mean, it was Israel. Guess who was more wealthy? Israel. The list goes on and on and on. And so then, over time, they kind of learn to kind of live beside each other and not kill each other all the time. But Obadiah says this was going on in verse eleven. He says, "On the day that you stood aloof." On the day strangers captured Jacob's wealth. Okay, remember, your brother Jacob, the nation of Israel. On the day that strangers captured Israel's wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. On multiple occasions through Israel's history, they were attacked by other nations, and Edom did not help them. They're third cousins, y'all, or whatever. They're something. They're related. You should help them. But they didn't step in and protect. And God says, you stood aloof while God, while, while, while uh, foreigners attacked the holy city of Jerusalem and you did nothing. That's one of the accusations. And he says at the end of it, he says, but you were just like one of them, which you're like, Dude, they didn't do anything, God. Like, why? I mean, they, they didn't perform that. Let's keep going. He says, don't gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. See, the nation of Edom started with this jealousy. Man, why do they have everything? Why do they have this? Why, do they all, why, why does God seem to pour out his blessing on them? But do you see how quickly it ramps up? You see, Edom didn't just turn their eye while Israel was getting attacked. They laughed, they gloated, they mocked. They reveled in someone else's demise. And then it gets worse. Verses 13, Obadiah, just, it's tail spinning. He's don't enter my people's city gate on the day of their disaster. Not like after the city's been knocked out, don't come up in here. Don't gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster. Don't, don't steal their possessions. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and then hand the survivors back over to the enemy. Look at the progression of Edom's sin. What started just as this jealousy, it then becomes mocking and laughter and reveling in someone else's demise. But now it has moved on to the point of opportunistic greed. At least on two of the attacking occasions when Israel was being attacked, Edom took the opportunity to come down and claim some of the stuff that was left behind. As the enemy moves through, they don't have time to gather up all the stuff. So Edom would come in and go and grab some stuff and head back across. Now they come into the cities and grab up things, grab up slaves, grab up, 
Grab up, um, uh, uh, what is it? Gold. That's what it's called, like money. Not money, but possession, stuff. I didn't have bills then. Okay, anyway. But that's what was going on. Edom took the opportunity to claim this stuff. In one situation, they even attacked smaller cities. So the whole army went to Jerusalem to protect it. And as the army was being defeated, you know, Edom slips into these smaller cities and attacks them when the enemy's not there. You see how crazy this is getting. What a way to treat someone you should care about, your family. And then in the last verse, verse 14 or whatever that I just read, it goes even further. It says that they set up some sort of human barricade. A, uh, uh, what was that game you played? Red, Ro- Red Rover. I almost said Red Robin. That's the burger. Red Rover. Rather, they almost formed this, they almost formed this human wall at the, at the, uh, at the, uh, the, at Judah's, like they go to their, the edge of their property. And anybody that tries to get away, they stop them and they actually turn them in to the attacking enemy, the people that God's, God actually in his sovereignty was allowing them, you know, a way out and Edom showed up and was like, no, 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 no. You're going to go back and serve under them, right? This is crazy. And remember that it all started with a simple bit of jealousy, but it turned quickly into betrayal. You got a group of people sitting up on their high place, looking down in jealousy at people around them that they're supposed to care for. And when evil came their way, they didn't step in. They didn't help. Instead, they sat up on their high place and laughed about it. And I've got to ask the question, how did God feel about it? Not good would be a simple answer, but I would argue he hated it. God hated it. He hated it. It infuriated him so much that Edom did not help, that he wanted to destroy the nation because of it. God's frustration with Edom was not because they weren't his favorites, not because they were descendants of Esau. It was because of their jealousy and betrayal. It was because of their sin. And can I be honest with you today? I believe, myself included, that many people in the church are guilty of the same sin that Edom's guilty of. We build our lives as these beautiful cities carved into hard social media stone. There's no softness to our lives. We want everyone to think that we're rough and tough and we can take care of ourselves and that everything is awesome. If you don't, it's a, it's a, from a movie. Anyway, but really, really, we are eaten up with jealousy towards others. And before I go into this, don't do what I did. As I was writing this, I thought, man, this is for somebody. Daggone, this message is for somebody. Let me just stop and say, we've all been here. We've all been jealous of somebody else. So just don't look around. Don't think about somebody else. Don't think about your mom. Don't think about your cousin. Don't think about you. Think about yourself as I go through this. We are eaten up with jealousy towards those around us, the one that got the promotion over us. The one who's better looking than us. The one who's more popular than us, has better behaved kids than us, has a nicer house than us, 
nicer vehicles, a better smile, better at taking selfies, in better shape, more followers on social media, can afford to put their kids in that great school that you could never afford, never seems to have any troubles. The list could go on and on. And the problem is, is that we're not looking at people on TV or in the movies to be jealous of. We're looking at people around us right now. People that we come to worship with on Sunday. People that we're called to love. We speak to one another on Sunday. Good morning, man. Y'all had a good weekend. Good to see you. Bless the Lord. But sometimes even the people in this room, we're, we're jealous of one another. The life that they get to leave, we're eaten up inside. And I believe it's one of the great weaknesses of the church today. We're called to love one another and to be here for one another. But when there is jealousy and rivalry, there is no love. I know what you're thinking, though. But, hey, I meet up with jealousy, but, like, it ain't hurt nobody. Like, I feel like a, like a zero, a loser most of the time. But, like, I'll deal with that. But remember the story. Remember what happened to Edom. It started off with this jealousy that all of us would agree, yeah, man, it kind of stinks to be you. It started there, but look where the progression went. We might say that Edom's jealousy was justified. I would be one that would, but their ancestor, their ancestor was the firstborn. Why did God give the special blessing to Jacob instead of Esau? Why did they get the bigger piece of dirt? Why does God seem to be blessing them more than he is us? But the, the jealousy progresses all the way to betrayal. And my question is this, what happens when that guy or girl that you're jealous of falls? Watch what happens when their life falls apart. When they get a, they get a bad uh, medical diagnosis. When their spouse leaves them. When their kids go nuts. How do you feel? Is there not a, a small, a small, tiny, very, very tiny part in your heart that smiles? That goes, finally, Miss Perfect had something bad happen in her life. And y'all are looking at me like, you don't have, you've never been there. I'm the only one. I'll finish this sermon in private. And we can laugh because I think at some point we can all relate to this. And so I've got to ask the same question I asked about Edom. If this is the way, if this is a sinfulness, a sinful place in our hearts, how does God feel about it? Okay, well, God knows I'm a sinner. God knows that nobody's perfect. No, 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 let's, let's, let's go back. God hates it. That's what happens. God hates it. In fact, God desires to destroy the one who acts this way. We just saw it in Obadiah. <laughs> that happened. The jealous mentality that leads to such sinful behavior as betrayal has no place in the heart of believers in Jesus. However, the church is way, not this church, praise the Lord. It's why I'm here as your pastor. The door opened to come here and I said, yes, because this stuff doesn't go on here. But we want to keep it that way. The church is very well known for eating its own. You know what I mean by that? When people are hurting, we'll chew them up and spit them out. Some of y'all have been burned by churches like that. You've been in a place where, man, you're hurting and you needed somebody to be there for you. 
I didn't give you nothing. The problem is we're being ripped apart by this ridiculous game of comparison that the world wants you engaged in. Like my son wants me playing Mario Kart with him, the world wants you to play this game of comparison. It's fueled by everything we see. And we're going to actually talk uh, in the coming message series for March. That we're calling it Hurdles. And we're going to be looking at things that trip us up in our Christian walk. And uh, it's going to be really cool. We'll talk about the game of comparison some more. So, But for today... Can we just acknowledge that the rivalry that we often feel towards others, like it's it's not just in other people, it's something somebody else struggles with. It's at some point in the heart of all of us. It's something that we deal with. And it's a big deal. God hates it. So let's stop acting like it's not. And number three is this. Okay, let's get off of that. All right. Praise the Lord. He's done with point two. Point number three, Edom, we've seen Edom's sentence. We've seen their sin. Now we see Edom as a symbol. From verse four, 15 on, God begins to talk about a day of the Lord. That, as we've already said, is kind of short term. It's already happened. But he also is speaking of a time in which it's, it's further into the future when all wrongs will be made right and evil will be dealt with. Look at verse 15. He says, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations, not just Edom. So this is, this is clearly not just talking about Edom's downfall. He says, as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. What's God saying? Edom, all that you've done to those you were supposed to care for and protect, it's going to be right back on you, baby. The, betray, the way you betrayed, you're going to be left high and dry and ain't nobody around going to help you. Petra will be rubble. Your tight, difficult passage that makes it, man, uh, makes it difficult for man to get to you, God's going to blow through there with his wrath like you ain't never seen. There will be no stopping God's judgment. And I just got to say, because we haven't talked about it all through the last three weeks, in the same way, there is a day of judgment coming for all of us. There's a day of coming, not a day of judgment coming, not just for Edom, but for all of mankind. And those who have chosen to live their own way, making their own decision to live apart from the calling and power of God will face the same judgment as Edom. I read a pastor's words this week on Obadiah. And I, y'all know I do this from time to time because I'm just not a good writer a lot of times. And so I just steal stuff. So this is from another pastor. I'm telling you, I stole it. Here we go. He said, if we choose in our pride to live without God, then he will grant us our dependence, our independence in the day of the Lord. I butchered that. Let's start over. If we choose in our pride to live without God, then he will grant us our independence in the day of the Lord. He will not be our refuge or our righteousness in that day. And our self-confidence will be like a feather in a hurricane when God's wrath is revealed from heaven. In the same way that Edom said, I don't care about God. Uh, we're, we're big enough. We're strong enough. We take care of ourselves. In the same way, if you do that, the day of the Lord is a terrifying day. But. Isn't that good? I like a good but in the Bible. It's okay to laugh at that. It was supposed to be a joke. It's awkward if you don't laugh. But 
God strategically puts that beautiful three-letter word in there when there's all this bad news. But, and then God gives us good news. Look at verse 17. The day of the Lord, terrible, all this stuff. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion. There will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, which is a reference to uh, the holy city. Church, there is deliverance on the day of the Lord. There is a deliverance for God's people. And here's the thing. Obadiah didn't fully grasp all that God has planned on that last and final day of the Lord. But we know more of the story now because of the Old Testament. To Obadiah, the day of the Lord would would be a judgment for the nations. They were evil towards Israel and God is going to give Israel their land back and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be better than it ever was and maybe he'll even give them a little bit more land and they're going to enjoy that forever and no one will ever be able to take it from them. But what Obadiah could not see is that the day of the Lord is not just a judgment of nations, it's a judgment of individuals. It's, a day, it's, it's, it's not as much about whether you loved Israel, but whether you loved the one that came from the family line of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Obadiah thought the only escape was to be an Israelite, but Paul says in the New Testament there's no longer a distinction between Jews and non-Jews. We're all one family if we have trusted in Jesus as Savior Obadiah looked forward and saw a glimpse of a day coming that we now have a better picture of. So let me ask you not what your politics are towards Israel. That's not the big question. I want to ask you, are you trusting in Jesus or are you living your life apart from him? That's the question. And the reason I need to ask that question is because that's the question that's coming on the day of the Lord. Not, hey man, do you always stand behind Israel? It's do, have you, are you, did you trust in Jesus as your Savior, church? This is the most important question I can ask you. And I know we've spent three weeks talking about the day of the Lord and we've just focused on it. We haven't brought it home yet, and but we're doing it now. Every book we have studied this month has talked about a coming day. We must be ready And the way that we get ready, the Bible says, is to repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus. Just a few moments ago, before the service started, I was explaining to an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, (laughs) eight-year-old, what repentance is. So I'm going to explain it the same way I did him. My son likes to play video games. And sometimes he wants to play a game that's way over his head. And he stinks at it, okay? And what does he do when he gets in a mess in a video game? What's he do? He hands me the controller, right? He gives the controller to me. Why? Because I've been playing video games since 1987. (laughs) And I can get him out of it. Repentance is the same thing, church. You left to your own devices, will blow it and butcher your life. You'll be a bad husband. You'll be a bad daddy. You'll be a bad citizen. You'll be a bad everything that you can imagine. You can't do it. But if you'll give God the controller, you'll repent of your sin say, God, I can't do this anymore. You take over. That's repentance. It literally means to turn. Turn from what you're doing and turn to what God wants. It's repent. 
And then you've got to believe. You've got to believe that God actually is the one that can run with it. My son hands me the controller because I've proven myself. Through Mario 1, 2, and 3 on regular Nintendo, Super Mario World on Super Nintendo, and Mario 64 and Mario Kart on Nintendo 64, I could keep going. I've proven myself as somebody who's trustworthy. And our God, who sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to remedy your To remedy your sin problem? He's worthy. And you can trust him. Give him the controller. This is the call that's that 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 God was trying to get in Edom's mind, but they had turned so far and they had the day of the Lord came before they had an opportunity to repent. And now I'm telling you, I don't know when it's coming. I don't know if necessarily what's going on in Russia should should scare us and think it's closer. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is it's coming. There is a day in which they will no longer have an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ, whether it be through your death or through the day of the Lord. But today, everything can change. You can give your Nintendo Switch controller to God and let Him run with it. And you can live your life every day for God through the work of the Holy Spirit in you to repent and to believe and to receive the freedom that will cover you on the day of the Lord. There's a reason why it's called salvation. It's that when the day comes, you are safe. But I know a group this large, some of us are not safe. And today we want to show you how you can be safe. I've explained it to you. But I'm, we're going to sing a song here in a second. And I'm going to be like right here somewhere on this front row. If you need to come talk to me or... We'll have decision counselors by the back door. They're not creepy and weird. They're just normal people like you who want to help you wrestle. Help you figure out how you can be safe on the day of the Lord. You can live your day. You can hand your controller to, to God. Like that's, that's going on. We'd love to do that during this song. I'm going to stand down here. But for most of you, I know you've already taken the step to be saved. And you're, when the day of the Lord comes, you're going to be on the right side of judgment. Not because of who you are, but because Christ, uh, Christ sacrificed for you. You've accepted it. You've, you, you've, you've repented and you've trusted in Jesus. Glad, good. But like, can I just challenge you as I've been challenged this week? Don't live your life like you're better than everybody else. Don't soar over the world as if you're something special because God will bring you down. Even if you're a Christian in this world, God is in the, desi- God is in the business of humbling His people. Live a life of humility. So that God ain't got to do it for you. Amen. Amen. I want to say a word of prayer. And if you need to come to this altar and you need to lift up prayers for yourself or for other people, or you need to come talk to me about a decision, I'm going to be right here on the front row. But uh, I want to pray. And then we'll stand and you can sing uh, or respond however. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, God, it's such a weird book. Uh, God, as I was studying the last few weeks, God, I couldn't even make sense of it for a little while. Like, I couldn't see past uh the con- the context and it, it seeing god like what does it have to do with me and then you just open my eyes god to see my own sinful heart in the nation of edom and god how i too can live this life separated and look down on those that i'm honestly jealous of god i'm not better than them i actually want the life they have god i pray god as you've done this week that you would continue god to to bring my heart down to this humble place god of of loving others. And God, that Lindsay Lane East will be known as a place where, God, if you're hurting, this is the place to come. If you're broken, come in. And God, that this will be a place, God, not where we eat our own, but where we help our own. 
we help heal our own. We bring comfort and love to those that are in need of comfort and love. God, I pray that we'd be a place known for preaching the gospel, that you sent your son Jesus to bring us, to take away our sins and to bring us back to you. And God, today, I pray, God, if there's anybody here who's never done that, that you give them the courage just to talk to somebody, whether it's me up here or the decision conference by the back or a friend that brought them. And God, that nobody would leave this place without having that conversation. God, I pray that you'd be this time of response. God, help us to deal with the sin of our own heart. God, it may seem insignificant to us right now, but God, there is sin progresses and it spirals out of control. And God, we need to catch it while it's just jealousy long before it gets to betrayal. God, cleanse us and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.